Welcome to Question Period. I hope you're doing well. I'm Evan Solomon. Today in our program, Job Apocalypse. These numbers tell us what we already knew. That right now, Canadians are hurting because of this pandemic. Nearly 2 million Canadians have lost their job in April, driving the unemployment rate to a stunning 13% and Canada into a deep recession. How long should the government extend the COVID emergency response benefit? Will Ottawa step in to take over the disaster in long-term care homes? The employment minister, Carla Qualtro, joins us with some new details. And then, is oil dead? My heart bleeds for people who believe the sector is going to come back because it's not. Oil is dead. Those words flared across Canada, prompting Premier Jason Kenney to say Elizabeth May was kicking Alberta when it's down. Is it true or just divisive? The Green Party's parliamentary leader, Elizabeth May, defends her words and debates the former Saskatchewan Premier, Brad Wall. Then, danger pay? No one. Uh, should be asked to work in unsafe conditions. Uh, that applies uh, during a pandemic as well. A meat processing plant in Alberta has reopened after almost a thousand employees test positive for COVID-19. Is it safe for workers to return? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us with his view. All that plus the scrum debates shutting down cottage country. This is question period. Let's go get some answers. We know many Canadians are worried about their loved ones in these facilities. Their concern for their health and the added stress of the isolation that our parents and grandparents are experiencing. It is why when Canadian Armed Forces have been called on to serve, they are there in their time of need. So COVID-19 is ravaging Canada's long-term care homes as we know. Over 80% of the deaths have occurred inside long-term care homes. And in a stunning admission of the total failure on this, Quebec and Ontario have called in over 1,600 members of Canada's military for emergency help. But that's not the only emergency going on. Two million jobs evaporated in April, doubling the one million that were torched in March. That pushed the unemployment figure up to 13% from 7.8% in March. So are all these aid packages from the federal government actually working? How will the government stop deaths in long-term care homes? To find out, we're joined now by the Employment Minister, Carla Qualtro. And Minister, before we start, I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day, uh, and I hope you're having a good one, and thanks for joining us. Can you just tell us, um, will the government, will the federal government, given the scope of this, extend the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit? Over 7 million people have it. Will that be extended past June? Well, first of all, Evan, so this 16-week benefit for anybody who started at, you know, at the very first day in March, March 15th, that is, it ends July 15th. So we have until July 15th, which is not to say that that's how long we're going to take to make this decision, but it doesn't end as early on as the wage subsidy was set to sunset. So I think the point you're making, though, is after that, will people still be getting help from the government? And right now we're looking at what that could look like. We're waiting to see how it interacts with the wage subsidy. You know, I can tell you the 1.7 million workers uh, qualified for the wage subsidy last week, so I expect those people to no longer be on the CERB. What about flexibility on the CERB? One of the things that people are concerned about is the qualification. If someone gets part-time work because there's a staggered opening, they make more than $1,000 a month. Let's say they make 1200 bucks. Suddenly they don't qualify for the CERB and they say, my goodness, what, what a terrible choice to make. Will your government start being more flexible on these criteria? Well, and that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. We're looking at the numbers. We're trying to dissect, 
you know, what what is pe what are people actually, what's their employment status right now? I know the job numbers were devastating, but we also have a lot of people on the serve who have jobs to go back to. When will those, when will they be going back to those jobs? Um, do we want to have a less amount of a benefit, but allow people to earn more to basically kind of wean it off, if you will? Um, we're looking at all those options. But again, for me, I'm really looking at the wage subsidy. I think in a week or two, we'll have much better data to assess what the next iteration of some kind of support for workers will be. Yeah, let's talk about that. You say 1.7 million workers. That sounds like a lot. Next to the CERB, though, 7 million, it's not a lot. I, as I understand it, the take-up's actually been slower and less than your government predicted. Why is that? Yeah, I don't know. It's a really important question, and we're digging into that. So we've had 120,000 businesses apply, which is not a small number. Um, we've approved 97,000 at, at my, my last information. There might be more now. Um, so we really want businesses to let us know if they're what the barriers are they're facing. Is this is it harder than we think to apply for this? What you know what roadblocks are they encountering? So we can, for me personally, the wage subsidy is absolutely the way of the future to, to position Canada's workers and businesses where they need to be to give us the best best shot at recovery. The CERB was delivered really quickly, like people applied and they got it. What I'm hearing is that the wage subsidy is not being delivered. Some businesses are saying, I have it, some have got it, but a lot have it. Yeah. Are you concerned that you've got a, what your government used to call a deliverology problem here? No, I'm not. I think, I mean, it's a more complex um, data set, if you will. People have to give in names and numbers and income levels and then the calculations. It's just a longer processing, front-end processing um, exercise, if you will. It's as streamlined as we thought we could make it. I, I'm not at all concerned that it won't happen and won't happen reasonably quickly. I would say quickly in normal times, for sure. Um, I, I'm not worried at all about that, and every day we're looking to make it easier. You know, speed's relative. The problem now is businesses are going under. And, yeah. and so what in normal times this would be quick, now it could be fatal because days matter and weeks matter. Does your yeah. government have a, a model of the failure rate of businesses, bankruptcy rates, insolvency rates? What is the number you guys are modeling on here? I don't think we have the, the exact number you're looking for. We've got some idea of consequences. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce have dug in. Finance Canada has obviously dug in. I mean, my focus, as I've said, is really on um, workers and, and making sure people what I'm looking at is to try and figure out what people are doing. Do they have jobs to come back to? You know, the numbers that we got didn't reflect the, the millions of Canadians who are taking the CERB, but might be off work for COVID-related reasons like illness or childcare responsibilities. So how do we make sure there's jobs for them to go back to? Well, let's talk about that. I want to dig into the numbers because they actually may not reflect realities. And we'll talk about the unemployment number. The official figure now is 13% after 2 million people lost their jobs in April. But that's on top of 1 million people who lost their jobs in March. But yeah. 2 and a half million people have jobs but are not working. Uh, and many of them are not getting paid, about 80%. 1 million want to work but didn't look for a job because there are no jobs. So economists like Jim Stanford say the employment rate could be 27 to 30%. Question, is this now officially a recession or if those numbers are correct, officially a depression? Well, you're not talking to an economist, but how I've heard it described is definitely as a recession. Um, not yet in the territory of depression. I, I, I've, I've tried to educate myself on this. Recession has to be for a certain number of quarters. But how we're feeling it as a country right now is definitely as a recession. Let me switch to long-term care, uh, which are private and public. 
Um, the Minister of Defense, Harjit Sajjan, told me on Power Play that the military can only stay a month to help out at long-term care facilities because they have other um, responsibilities. Is your government, does, your, does the federal government have a plan to stop the crisis, the shame that's going on there? Will you, for example, uh, maybe convince provinces to stop private uh, long-term care facilities? What's the plan? Well, I think there's some really tough longer-term conversations there that you alluded to in terms of how we potentially restructure how we deliver long-term care in this country. In the meantime, though, I think the final um, negotiations that happened this week with provinces around the essential worker top-up is going to help in terms of paying people what they deserve and what they should have been paid all along, quite frankly. Um, you know, we know that the military only has a certain capacity, and we've been looking at ways in my department, for example, of training up additional people so that they can be ready in a month or six weeks whenever to take on and be the next wave of support in these long-term care facilities. Well, sorry, sorry, We're, sorry. I, mean, sorry, I, sorry I, go ahead. I want to clear, tell me what about that. Your department is going to train federal workers to go into long-term care homes? No, What's no, that? no. What I'm saying is we may, may, we may create, working with the Home Care Workers Associations of Canada, some kind of training so that people who aren't in those jobs now, maybe people who are at home and, and, and unemployed, can take a shortened version of this 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 training and be able in very short order to um, perform the less complicated tasks that are required in these homes not federal government employees um, canadians who want to step up we will help them with the training and be ready to it's just like the volunteer corps that the minister right. of health has put together people hundreds of thousands of canadians are ready we just have to make sure they're trained and they're safe and that they too are not put at risk but this is provincial responsibility so i'm i'm, I'm intrigued by that so is the federal government going to move in and, for example, pull the long-term care facilities under the Canada Health Act to set guidelines, or would you be in favor of banning privately run long-term care homes? Oh, no. I mean, we're certainly not doing any of those things in any... No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we're going to make available, ideally, some kind of workforce um, that the provinces can avail themselves of to... Um, to help and to provide some backstopping of these positions. It's, we do a lot of training. My department does training in a bunch of different areas, including those that are... And when I say we do the training, we, we fund the training. I apologize. We're not out there actually teaching the courses. We fund the training in private and public institutions across the country. But just the idea that we can direct some of our training money to, uh, to train up healthcare right. professionals that can then work within provincial systems across the country. Final question for you. Um, the parliamentary budget officer said that the, the deficit, and this was before a lot of announcements, will be well over $230 billion. We, it could go up. The programs keep coming almost every day. The need is there. Does your government have a plan when this is ending, a recovery plan? And is there a, an, is there a limit that you guys have on your spending? Well, I'd say a couple of points. First of all, going into this, we knew we had the fiscal bandwidth to make the decisions and provide the support that we've made to date. We also know that there is going to be a deficit, probably one that's higher than any of us would ideally be comfortable with. But right now, the plan is to get, you know, the more people working and the more businesses that survive this, and that's where the investments are going, the better position we'll be to tackle those really important questions. And of course, we're talking about that, Evan, we're, we're looking at the best way. But right now, you know, per, from my perspective, squarely focused on positioning workers and businesses to come out of this in the best way possible. All right, well, there's a long road ahead. I appreciate you joining us on Mother's Day. Thank you, Minister Qualtro. <laughs> My pleasure. Take care. Take good care. All right, coming up on our program, is oil really dead, as Elizabeth May has declared? How should the federal government support an industry hit by the perfect storm? 
of a collapse in price. The Green Party parliamentary leader, Elizabeth May, and the former Saskatchewan Premier, Brad Wall, will debate the future of our energy industry next. You don't want to miss that. Stay right here with Question Period. If oil industry as a whole might not be so dead, I think tar sands are condemned. And putting any more money in that business is a very bad idea. Please stop kicking us while we're down. We Albertans have been generous and we will continue to be generous. But this, um, these attacks on our natural resource industries are unwarranted, they are divisive, they're, I believe, in a way, un-Canadian at a time like this. It's like blaming the victim. That's Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. He pounded back at both the Bloc Quebecois leader and the former Green Party leader, Elizabeth May, after one declared oil is dead and the other said the government should not give any money to the current industry. Canada's oil and gas sector, which employs over 500,000 workers, is struggling to survive a price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia at the same time as the global coronavirus pandemic drives down overall demand. The unemployment rate in Calgary is among the highest in the country right now. Is the oil industry dead, as the Green Party leader and parliamentary leader Elizabeth May said, or should the federal government step in with even more money to support that industry? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Green Party's parliamentary leader, Elizabeth May, to defend her words, and the former Saskatchewan Premier, Brad Wall, with a very different view. Uh, first of all, good to see both of you. I hope your families are well. Uh, Elizabeth May, I'm going to start with you. you. The Premier of Alberta called your words un-Canadian, divisive, uh, kicking the province when it's down. You've stood by them. Why do you say oil is dead? Well, first of all, I want to reassure anyone watching that I absolutely and the Green Party supports money for Alberta. We support help to workers. We support help to communities. We have to pull through this as a country and we have to pull through it together. But there's been a massive amount of information coming at us from all around the world that getting out of this pandemic and avoiding a global depression, governments have to pick and choose where they're going to put government dollars. A, a group of economists did a survey of hundreds of experts within the G20 in their central banks, energy experts, and their conclusion was, and it was published this week, we don't want to put money into fossil fuels if we want to recover the global economy. The, the way in which we get out of this is going to be by investing in renewables. Right. So it, there's a large degree of consensus, and even Royal Dutch Shell's CEO said this week that she didn't think that there was necessarily going to be a recovery for the oil sector. So that's not every CEO of every big global oil company. But when the Royal, when Royal Dutch Shell CEO tells their shareholders, this may never come back, combined with world economists and experts saying, don't right. put money into fossil fuels now, it won't help us recover okay. as a global economy. Let me bring it that's to Brad. That's why I say what I said. All right. Uh, so Elizabeth May says saying oil is dead is justifiable. What do you say, Bradwell? Well, I, I disagree. I respectfully disagree with Elizabeth on that point. In fact, I think just today, Reichstadtenergy.com, which is a respected analyst, predicted, forecasted that the global demand for oil will return to 2019 levels in 2021 at about 99 uh, million barrels per day. Canada 
is home to a third of the world's reserves of oil, a third of the world's reserves of oil. Uh, we have this great opportunity to continue to produce oil in a way that uh, is more sustainable and more responsible than almost any other nation on the planet that happens to be fortunate enough to have hydrocarbons. And to say that oil is dead would deny Canada a chance to frankly contribute to, to meet existing demand, demand that will be there post-COVID in a way that's more responsible than maybe some of our competitor countries would, all the while ensuring that half a million Canadian families that rely on the jobs that are created in the sector, as Evan noted off the top, can continue to be employed and contribute, that the social services supported by the energy sector through taxes and royalties can continue, that investment can continue. Uh, I just think it's, frankly, I have to say, Elizabeth, I, I thought it was, it was divisive and dangerous to say something like oil is dead. I, I point out that muscle, demand for, for PEI muscles has fallen through the floor, and so has the demand and for Canadian potatoes, because French fry demands fallen through the floor, unfortunately, as a result of all of this. The same could be said for beef and any number of other things that Canadians make. None of those industries are dead. Those industries are facing real challenges right. because of what COVID yeah. has visited on them, but they're not dead. And we should take an approach in Canada that when we have an opportunity and have a sector like oil to say, well, maybe other 20 other uh, G20 countries are saying they okay. want to invest in something else. But in the meantime, we've got oil to sell and energy to yeah. produce in a way that's, sustained, that's, that's done responsibly and that employs Canadians. Elizabeth, and May, well, you want to respond? Go ahead. Well, the, the CEO of McCain's isn't saying French fries aren't going to come back as something people want to eat. We know that what's happening to oil is being pummeled is a combination of factors. And it's not, you know, goodness knows that Russia and Saudi's effort is directed specifically to wipe out mostly U.S. back and shale because any fossil fuel that's really expensive to produce is, is hard hit by opening the taps and flooding the market so that supply is so, so high that it drives down the price. Now, it happens, bad luck for Alberta, that the oil sands are quite like back in shale in that they're very expensive to produce. But unlike back in shale, bitumen once produced is of inherently low value because you can't take it straight to a refinery and turn it into something. But when we look at what's going to be squeezed out of the marketplace, and, and it was in uh, uh, oilprice.com just today, that the only way the price of oil comes back up is if we limit supply. And in limitation of supply, one of the first casualties is going to be high-priced bitumen from the oil sense. So we ought to prepare for that, make sure we're protecting the workers, make sure that there's a transition plan in place. We completely support as Greens, for instance, putting $1.9 billion into federal money to bail out what the oil sector and the companies that created those wells before they okay. were orphaned okay. and abandoned. Okay, hang on, just for we time. We support that. Okay, so Bradwell, uh, I mean, so, so sure. I, please respond to that, but what, I, I sure. just want to get practical. If you're in government now, what would you do right now with the oil and gas sector, which has been doubly pummeled? You're listening to Elizabeth May. Well, what do they need? What would you do? Well, first of all, some oil sands companies, and, and the Bakken's not just in the U.S., it's in Saskatchewan, actually. Uh, as well, and a lot of the companies yeah. involved there are profitable or can certainly survive at 35 to $40 a barrel, and we're not terribly far off of that today. So I'm not sure I agree with the, with the, with the last point that Elizabeth raised. But in 2009, when the crisis hit the auto sector, Canadians supported the then Harper government in investing $13 billion, not just in the work for the workers, but in the companies to preserve the companies. And so what we need today, and Evan, that's the question you've asked, is to address the liquidity issues of companies that can and will survive 
this uh, if given just a little bit of help on the liquidity side. Remember that the auto sector paid back almost all of the money given to them by Canadian taxpayers. The same is being asked for by the sector today by Canadian companies who are saying, look, we, they're, they're taking a look at our balance sheets. We, can, we will be able to and will pay this money back, but right now we have liquidity issues and to live, to fight another day, these are the things that are important. And Canada needs to, needs to be very clear with Western, the, the country needs to be clear with the West and the offshore. Do we want this industry or not? And I would say the answer should be emphatically yes, because if we're not, if, if we're just ceding to the lowest cost uh, producers in the world, if we're just saying we're out of this business, as, as Elizabeth, I think, would have us do, who are those that we are ceding the ground to? Well, it's by and large dictators and at the expense of jobs for this country and global leadership right. that we can play in this country. Yeah. And, and let's also not let's also remember that LNG can replace coal. Uh, in Asia, yeah. as we would all want in other places. Yeah. So I think yeah. it's a narrow view, and I think it's a dangerous view that you're, and, and, the, and the phrase oil is dead was, was, a, was not just hurtful. I think it was disrespectful and dangerous with, with, in regards to uh, the, the parts of the country that uh, I, that I, that I well, happen to I, be in. Okay, last week, Elizabeth, I just got last minute here. Go ahead. Look, we're the only party that actually calls for an end to importing Saudi oil. We're the only party that's saying as long as we're using oil, we should be using Canadian oil. But the reality is that the handwriting is on the wall, but this is a sunset industry. It, we absolutely have an obligation. I, as a maritimer, I remember when 30,000 people were out of work overnight when the COD stocks collapsed. I don't want to see the oil sector workers or any workers go through that kind of shock for which there was no plan. We need a plan. We need to fund it. We need to talk to communities and have a Just Transition Act that protects workers and communities. Because this isn't me talking. We can pretend all we want that there's a future in fossil fuels, but there isn't. And we need to plan for it and we need to make sure our post-pandemic spending avoids a depression and takes care of people right. in Canada. There is going to be growing demand for a fossil fuels till 2050. Of that, now, there is consensus. And we could be a part of that, or you could write off an entire uh, sector, Elizabeth, and well, I, we, I hope we, I hope we not, choose the former. Well, we don't want to write off future generations either. So we have to address True. the climate crisis and a post-pandemic economy that's going to All look right. a lot different than the pre-pandemic economy. Guys, i got to leave it there. There's a critical... Uh, debate that we're having, Elizabeth May and Bradwell. First of all, I appreciate both of you coming on. Uh, take good care of Thank yourselves. You. Coming up, what should the federal government do to help long-term care homes where over 80% of the deaths from the coronavirus have occurred? And what about safety in meat processing plants? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. So provinces across Canada are starting to reopen their economies, but the threat of COVID-19 is not behind us by a long shot, especially in provinces like Quebec and Ontario and Alberta that are still seeing hundreds of new coronavirus cases every day, especially in long-term care homes. This is provincial responsibility, of course, but what should the federal government do about it? And what about the newly reopened meat packing plant, meat processing plant in Alberta that saw over 900 workers, 900 test positive for the virus? Is it safe for them to return to work there? Let's find out. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us now. Hope you and the family are well, Mr. Singh. Thank uh, you, let's just start uh, with Alberta. Do you think it, it was wrong for Alberta to let the uh, meat packing plant uh, in Cargill reopen after those high infection rates? Yes. 
And it's particularly wrong because of three things that are missing. Well, two things in this case that are missing. First off, we need to know workers are safe. Before workers return to work, they need to know that they're going to a place where they're not going to risk getting infected or infecting their colleagues. And there are some really clear requests about space and distance and ensuring that the work conditions are such that the workers are not going to infect one another. And then secondly, we need paid sick leave. A worker who gets sick needs to know that they don't have to choose between going to work and risking spreading an infection or staying at home and not having paid sick leave and not knowing how they're going to pay the bills. So those are two things I think that need to be in place before, uh, particularly in the case of Cargill, that worker, work resumes. But in general, the third thing would be childcare. A lot of parents are worried about childcare, not having access to it. And particularly that a lot of women were let go from work because of the service sectors that were impacted. So women have been disproportionately impacted. We need to know that there's, there's good quality childcare available. Okay, well, there's the meat packaging industry and the meat processing, but there's also long-term care, and, and COVID has revealed those long-standing weaknesses in long-term care homes. 80% of the deaths have been in long-term care homes. This has really exposed, frankly, a failure of the provinces. We've got 1,600 members of the military now there. Uh, what needs to happen now? Should these be, a lot of them are private, by the way, should these be federally regulated? Well, we need to make it really clear that the, the painful evidence of the neglect of our healthcare system is the fact that our long-term care homes are seeing such high numbers of deaths. And what we need to do is we need to make sure that there's a national care guarantee. If your loved ones are going, in a, are going to a, a long-term care home, people need to know that they're going to be cared for, that they're, they're going to be safe. And right now, the for-profit or the privatized long-term care homes are the site of some of the worst conditions and the highest numbers of deaths. So we absolutely need to look at developing a national standard, a care guarantee, and then using the Canada Health Act to bring that into the public realm. It's got to be public and it's got to be high quality. It's got to be the, public. Okay, so that's interesting. Would you call for two things? Would you call for a ban or, or of, of private long-term care facilities? I think we need to end them. I think there's no question about it. Given the, uh, given the results that we're seeing, the evidence that we're seeing that some of the worst conditions that seniors are in and some of the highest deaths have happened in the for-profit for long-term care homes, there's really clear evidence that it's the wrong way to go. Profit should not be the motive when it comes to how we care for our seniors. They need quality care, they need high quality, safe conditions, and the for-profit system has failed, and long-term care homes in general have failed seniors, and we need to do a but lot better. To be fair, public ones have well have not done, done very That's well. Right. So then, so who would, who would pay for that? Do you think the federal government should have mm -hmm. strings attached on the Canada Health Transfer? We'll give you the money, but it's gotta to go to long-term care homes, is that it? Well, we've, we've suggested and we campaigned on this in the campaign that, that we should look at national standards, so a care guarantee nationally, and then work to roll in long-term care home into the Canada Health Act. So there are those accountability measures. And absolutely, the way our Canada Health Act works is transfers are based on a number of principles about quality, about accessibility, about it being publicly delivered. And similarly, we could bring those same criteria to long-term care homes as well. Uh, Elizabeth May was just on our program. She said oil is dead. The Bloc Quebecois leader said we should not be supporting the oil industry in this crisis. Do you agree with Elizabeth May that oil is dead? Well, I don't think it helps to, to make inflammatory comments. I think the reality is there's a lot of workers in the resource sector and a lot of workers in the energy sector that are really worried about their future. And they, they deserve having long-term jobs and, and Alberta needs a lot of help. And I know the future 
of energy is renewable energy. I know the future for how we build up our infrastructure has to be one where we're taking into consideration our emissions and reducing those. But for those workers in the resource sector, those workers in the oil sector, it's none of their fault that they're going through this crisis and we need to make sure they get supports and help. I so want to you, bring you, them along. you think more aid should go to the energy sector? Well, I don't think any aid should go to any sector unless it's tied directly to workers. And I also think there should be a second criteria of long lasting jobs. We need to make investments that create long-term opportunities for workers. And that's going to be my criteria. Additionally, long-term sustainability means making sure we're working right. within the, the confines of our environment and we're working in a way that is in line with that. So there's ways to do that, but I don't want to turn my back on any worker and I want to do it in a way that brings these workers along. Finally, 2 million jobs were lost in April, another million back in March. We're clearly in a recession. If you calculate actually wider people who have jobs but aren't getting paid, people that aren't looking, the unemployment rate could be from between 13 and 30 percent, depending on how you calculate. Would you like to see the government transform the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, which gives over 7 million Canadians right now $2,000 a month, into something longer term, extended, maybe even into what you've talked about before, a universal basic income? Uh, long, uh, short answer, yes, we need to look at long-term benefits for people and we need to review the EI system. The EI system was designed in the 70s and is not sufficient to respond to the needs of people. We saw that under the EI, only 40% of Canadians would even qualify. So we need something much broader. And whether it's the CERB modified to be a long-term tool to give people the help they need or another program, we absolutely need to look at a better way to take care of one another and a better social safety right. net. Absolutely. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much on uh, Mother's Day joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Coming up, the long-term care home crisis. Over 80% of the COVID-19 deaths are in long-term care homes. Why did it take this country so long to recognize the system is badly failing our most vulnerable? Should there be a national inquiry? The scrum is up. Our special guests will be Jenny Byrne and Tom Mulcair. Stay right here with Question Period. First to admit, the, the, the system's broken. Uh, this ship had cracks in it when we inherited it, and it's been going on for decades. It's not about one government, by the way, either. I'm not going to point the fingers at the previous government or the government before that. Uh, the system is broken. We are going to fix it. Well, the COVID-19 pandemic has laid bare the harsh and ugly truth behind the hidden crisis happening inside Canada's long-term care homes. The numbers are startling, they're unsettling. Newly released data shows that at least 82%, 82% of Canada's COVID deaths, more than 3,400 of them, have occurred inside long-term care homes. News has surfaced recently that severely underpaid staff lacking essential personal protective equipment have to work there. Many say they have to work at multiple facilities to make ends meet. The situation is so bad in Ontario and Quebec, the military has been called in. Who is accountable? How has the system been allowed to fail seniors for so long? And as spring turns to summer, well, somewhere in this country, should you be allowed to go to your cottage? Let's bring in the scrum to debate all this. Annie Bergeron Oliver is a CTV News reporter. She's in isolation today at her house. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief. Happy Mother's Day, Joyce. She's at her home. And our special guests for this round are the former National Campaign Director for Stephen Harper, Jenny Byrne, and the former NDP leader and current CTV political commentator, Tom Mulcair. Uh, great to have all of you here. Tom, let me just start with you. Uh, 1,600 members of the military have been rushed in to help. It's clearly a sign of a total failure of the provinces to protect the most vulnerable. Who is accountable, Tom, and what should the federal government do about it? 
Well, the province of Quebec, like a lot of provinces, has always steadfastly held that health is a provincial jurisdiction, and guess what? They're going to have to bear the brunt of the responsibility. Here in Quebec, the long-term care homes have been an unmitigated disaster. Staff have gotten sick. As you correctly say, to get a full-time equivalent, they often work in two, three, four residences, and that's been spotted as the principal cause. They become vectors, and they go from place to place. BC dealt with it correctly. Dr. Bonnie Henry brought in a very tough rule. She prohibited that sort of uh, situation where people were going to more than one place. And you know what, Evan? It worked. BC, of all the large provinces, has the best results so far. And it's thanks to her determined efforts to make sure this didn't happen. All right. It's provincial responsibility, Jenny Byrne. But could the federal government be doing? What can they do to address this crisis? Well, I think in terms of long-term care, I, I agree with Tom uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, the provinces, uh, this is the jurisdiction of the provinces. And BC handled this. Uh, uh, correctly, uh, way back at the uh, at the first uh, first week of uh, of uh, uh, March, when uh, it became clear that this was a virus that was affecting uh, seniors more than uh, than other people in the general uh, general population. And you look at provinces like Ontario; it wasn't until uh, it wasn't until April fifteenth that the Ontario government put in uh, stipulations that uh, long term care workers uh, could not go from. Uh, uh, long-term care facility to long-term care facility which was like which was moving uh moving the virus which i think uh uh when there is royal commissions and uh uh inquiries on this yeah it, it's going to be decisions like that in ontario and in quebec that are going to be looked at yeah joyce uh seniors dying in unprecedented numbers what do you reckon that the political fallout is the military's i've been told they can only stay there a month yeah, well, obviously, you know, they can't stay there forever and there's going to have to be a solution. But you ask the question, whose responsibility is it? Um, these people in these homes are somebody's mother, father, uncle, grandfather. It is also our responsibility. And, you know, it came to light because of COVID-19, the conditions these people were living in. But we we know for just just by talking to people, in Quebec anyway, I don't know about the Ontario ones, that these places were dismal to begin with. So, you know, somewhere somebody hid his or her head in the sand and we made believe that all of a sudden, because of COVID-19, the conditions of our elders uh, became a scandal. They were a scandal before, but they were an unknown scandal. Now the question, Annie, national inquiry. Do the feds move in? Do they ban privately run long-term care homes where, I know the star did a study showing by far the outbreaks have been worse there in places like Ontario. Right, well, Dr. New was actually asked that on Saturday and he suggested that some type of national inquiry may be needed after this to look at the way that seniors are housed. In many cases, three or four of them to the room. You know, I think that, you know, the government has worked with the territories and the provinces to create a national framework for reopening. Perhaps they should look at doing the same thing for seniors because we are expecting a second, potentially a third wave. And the government has already said that they've underestimated the, the impact that this would have on seniors. They underestimated the number of deaths. So at this point, maybe it is time. It is a provincial responsibility but all of them can work together mm. to say what can we do what lessons can we learn from this tragedy so that when the second wave hits we are more prepared that these are the regulations that need to change so that people can stay safe and ultimately it needs to be a shift in society to respect those you know personal support workers and healthcare aides who are doing very difficult work mm -hmm. for very low pay and we need to respect those people more so they feel more confident in their jobs so here we are with a cottage controversy now tom mulcair uh 
long weekends coming up. A lot of people want to go to their summer homes. Uh, they pay for them. They're paying tax there. Doug Ford visited his uh, after telling people not to go to theirs. Justin Trudeau went to Harrington Lake, crossing a, bo a border to do so. Uh, can you convince people not to go to their summer homes? There, there's, in Ontario, there's no law against it. In some places, there is. What do you make of this policy? Actually, there is a rule that's a law in Quebec against it, and it's still enforced from going from Ottawa into cottage country just north in the Gatineaus, and there's a reason for it. Most of those small communities have very little health care, and they have very little COVID-19, and they were trying to keep it that way. So, of course, what happened when Prime Minister Trudeau chose to go to his, his cottage, his secondary residence there, a lot of people were just talking to the police officers, and I've talked to frontline cops who were there, and they were just saying, hey, if he can go, why can't I? And that's the number one problem. So forget about the personal responsibility for what he did. It's a question of the example that he gave. He's supposed to be a role model, but he wasn't playing that role. What about Doug Ford, Jenny? He did the same thing. He said, he, he said, I left early in the morning. I wanted to check my plumbing. I was back. But he's gotten roasted for that. Is that fair? Seems fair. You gotta, don't, don't you have to walk the walk? It's, it's absolutely fair. I think this is what people are getting sick of. It's the hypocrisy of politicians. So you have politicians who are out every day uh, and, and telling everyone to stay in their homes, but they're not doing it themselves. You have uh, Doug who went to his cottage and, and he should not have gone to his cottage. He said his cottage was under, under renovations. I can't see why those the workers doing the renovations couldn't have checked his plumbing. Uh, Trudeau uh, uh, as well. And I have no problem with them going. I am. I have a problem with the hypocrisy. You have John Tory here who will say to everyone he he would keep this city shut down forever. Uh, but yet he's he's he himself is out and about. He 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 will tell people one day to stay away and not go even for a walk. And he will then uh, walk in a parade uh, 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 doing uh, uh, celebrating uh, first responders which I believe they should be celebrated. I just don't think John Dory right. should have a parade for it. So I think that what people are getting sick of is the absolute hypocrisy by politicians during this time. I got to take a short break, but coming up, candidates for the conservative leadership race are racing to attract new supporters ahead of another key deadline. Are social conservatives now the kingmakers in that race? We'll talk about that and Elizabeth May's claim that oil is dead. The scrum is back next. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period, everybody. Well, another key deadline is coming up for the four candidates left in the Conservative leadership race. Remember, that is still going on. They have until Friday to sign up voters ahead of the August mail-in vote. So what will the issues that come to define this race be? Can Peter McKay recover from a convoluted stance on things like the rights of transgender Canadians and maintain a front-runner position? Should the federal government support the oil and gas sector with a bigger aid package? Lots to debate in this round because the scrum is back, Andy Bergeron-Oliver is back, so is Joyce Napier, and our special guests Jenny Byrne and Tom Mulcair are back. Jenny, I'll start with you. Um, well, we're coming to a critical moment in, in the Conservative race. Can you gauge it for us? Uh, one, what are the key issues and are social conservatives, the two left in the race, set to become kingmakers? Well, I guess we'll see. I, I think that uh, the plus for uh, a candidate like Peter McKay, who is the obvious front runner, is no one's really paying attention. I, I myself uh, live, breathe and consume politics, not just uh, for an interest, but it's part of my livelihood. And I don't really even care all that uh, uh, care, at, care all that much. So I think the fact that he is three months before the uh, before the uh, election day uh, uh, is a benefit uh, for him. 
as as the, uh, whether social conservatives will be kingmakers, I guess we'll uh, we'll see. I think that the conservative party, the conservative caucus, is getting completely overwhelmed uh, on on issues like example for Derek Sloan's uh, comments on uh, on uh, Theresa Tam. I wouldn't have known Derek Sloan prior to this leadership race if he had like walked in my condo. Um, but uh, uh, so I think that they're getting consumed in this, uh, which takes away from us at, at them asking legitimate questions of, uh, of the prime minister and of the public health authority. What do you make of as, it? As agency. Tom, what, what, what do you make of this race? I mean, Aaron O'Toole's gaining support. Uh, what do you make of the issues that are starting to define this and where they're headed? Well, two things. I agree with you about the social conservatives, because that's the tricky part of any ranked ballot. Unless Mr. McKay is able to take it on the first count, get over 50 percent, it gets tricky because the more social conservatives are going to be going around for the other candidates that hold that point of view. The other thing is, based on my own experience, I can tell you that fundraising is really the tail of the tape. And that's the thing. Mr. McKay has a prohibitive lead just based on fundraising. My sense is that it's his, but you know the old expression, it's his to lose. Some of the things that Mr. McKay has done during this campaign have just left me scratching my head. Most recent, deciding to send a demand letter threatening to sue an online publication because he didn't like what they said right in the middle of a leadership race, and it had to do with another candidate versus him. It was bizarre, and it really doesn't show a lot of political wherewithal to make that sort of threat. So keep an eye on Mr. McKay because he has been at times his own worst enemy, although yesterday he came out with one of the most thoughtful things that's been said with regard to dealing with China in the analysis that has to be done eventually as to what their what was and was not their responsibility. Uh, agreed. And this is this is where I think the conservatives are missing the boat. There are legitimate questions that have to be asked about the government. Uh, the public health author agency uh, health authority was was created after SARS in 2004 to make sure that we were uh, uh, ready for a pandemic. And we are we were in no way ready for a pandemic. We do not have enough of the uh, profession of the uh, PPEs, uh, and 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 in fact, we shipped PPEs after the World Health Authority told us not to uh, to China. So I think that there are legitimate questions that need to be asked of this government, and the Conservatives are failing to ask those questions because they're getting mired in uh, internal leadership politics. Annie, jump in. What, what are you looking at in this race? Well, I think it all comes down to sorry. relevance. And during the middle of the campaign, it's extremely difficult to try to get people's attention. As Jenny was saying, most people are so fed up with hearing about coronavirus nonstop, they're turning off their phones. So one has to wonder if this campaign is now shifting online, if it's all going to be about viral bites, trying to find some line, whether it's controversial or bizarre or just unusual, that will get people talking online. And you have seen that already from Derek Sloan. People are now talking about him because what he's saying online, whether you believe it or you don't, people are talking about him. So you have to wonder if this campaign now becomes who can be the most popular on social media with their viral bites, however they get it out there. Joyce. I mean, also, you know, how difficult is it to run a leadership campaign during COVID-19? So I kind of feel for them. On the other hand, it's to their advantage that people aren't paying attention because there's a lot of nonsense coming out of that campaign. And I can't understand why this is a good opportunity, even under COVID-19, for them to make some sense. There is no opposition in the House of Commons. They would be the opposition, but right now, the media is the only opposition, the only ones asking questions. So they could ask legitimate questions. What Mr. Sloan, the questions he was asking were not illegitimate, is accusing Dr. Tam of collaborating with China or of being more loyal to China than Canada. That was absurd. But asking 
Were we prepared for this pandemic when it started? Did we follow the right advice? Should we not have followed our own advice mm. after SARS? We learned some lessons. Those are all legitimate questions. So sometimes it's better if you don't pay attention to the nonsense that comes out of that campaign, they would have an opportunity to make a lot more sense than they are making right now. Jenny, uh, oil is dead, according to Elizabeth May, and uh, the, the Bloc Quebecois leader, Mr. Blanchet, says, you know what, don't support the oil and gas industry right now. Um, uh, those are incredibly inflammatory to many, many people. Uh, some people support it. What do you make of where that, the political consequences of how to respond to that kind of statement in the middle of this economic crisis? Well, but it's it's not just inflammatory, it's completely wrong. The number one export, uh, uh, Canada's number one export is oil. And, uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth May can say that we can, uh, you know, build uh, solar panels and wind farms, but at the end of the day, every other country in the world has sun and wind. So the number one export out of this country is uh, 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 is oil. It it is uh, it has been the uh, the golden goose, uh, so to speak, for this country. And uh, I think that I think Elizabeth May is naive, and I think that Blanchette is playing politics with it. But it's very very unfortunate because part of uh, the reason that we were able to weather the 2008-2009 economic crisis was the uh, was uh, El the Alberta oil sands. I got a minute here, Tom, real quick. Blanchette is a former environment minister. He comes by this honestly. The, the tricky part with Elizabeth May's statement, of course, is the inflammatory aspect of it, because declaring it dead is almost saying you just as soon see nothing done to help people in Alberta get their jobs back. And that's not I don't think what anybody is saying. So I think that we have to understand that this crisis is teaching us that we can have a cleaner environment, that we can have less commuting and maybe lower our greenhouse gases in areas like transportation. And if that's the takeaway, then it's positive. If it becomes an us versus them thing, nobody wins. All right, I, I got to leave it there. Uh, Tom, Joyce, Jenny and Annie, thanks for being there. Happy Mother's Day, Joyce. Uh, Annie, pet that dog that we can't see in the background. Very, very cute. And happy Mother's Day to all the moms in Canada. You work so hard to keep us all sane in this isolation period, including my own wonderful mother, who will be sending me a text soon about how I drop my G's at the end of words like coming up, or when I say see ya instead of see you. Mom, you're perfect in every way, especially grammatically. And my wife, who's the perfect mom to our kids. And we will see ya back here in seven days. Happy Mother's Day, and I'll see you tomorrow on PowerPlay on CTV News Channel at 5.